So some of you might be wondering, how is, how is Tate going to make it through 15 full words this morning? And that is, a, that is a fair concern. God has been very good to me this week and has convicted me deeply from these 15 words, and I want to share some of that with you, and I hope that the Holy Spirit does the same in your heart as well. Several years ago, I watched a clip of Penn Jilliot talking about Christian evangelism. Penn is the outspoken atheist and entertainer of the magic comedy duo Penn and Teller. I don't recommend listening to him. He's foul-mouthed. However, his take on evangelism is something every Christian should hear. Here's what he said. I don't respect people who don't proselytize. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and that people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think it's not really worth telling them this, because it would make it socially awkward? How much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize them? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it and the truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this He's referring to the reality of hell and eternal life. This is more important than that. That's the argument of an atheist. It's a devastating indictment against many of today's professing Christians. There's a massive disconnect between what we say we believe and how we behave based upon those beliefs. In this morning's text, though, we find a man whose actions are very much consistent with his convictions. The Apostle Paul believed that one day all men would face the King of Kings, and that King would level judgment against them. To one group, he'll say, come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. To the other group, he'll say, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That was Paul's conviction, and as we'll see, he labored in a way that was consistent with that belief. This morning is now the 20th week of our study in this letter in the book of Colossians, and we've made it to the final verse of chapter 1. It feels like an accomplishment, doesn't it? Well, next week, we're going to take a break, and we're going to start soaking in the Psalms for the summer, and we'll pick up in Colossians chapter 2 in the fall. In this section, of chapter 1, which runs from verse 24 through chapter 2, verse 5, Paul is telling the Colossians about his ministry to the church. As he described it, his work was to proclaim Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone And his purpose in doing that was so that he could present everyone mature in Christ. 
As Josh pointed out last week, that the idea behind that forms the basis of our own mission here at Living Water Church. We aim to form passionate followers of Jesus, not merely converts, but mature, wholehearted disciples. And we try to do that the way Paul did, by proclaiming Christ, which is shorthand for proclaiming the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to save sinners. In verse 29, Paul gives the Colossians a little more insight into his ministry. He tells them the strength or the intensity of his passion, and then he tells them the source of power for his ministry. Here's Paul's main point in this verse. The power by which he endured the suffering and the backbreaking labor of being a gospel servant came from Christ. It was grace, and it was meant to bring all of them to spiritual maturity. That's the main point. But we must be careful not to lose sight of the forest for the trees. It's easy to do that because we're studying this book verse by verse. The overarching reason Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians and why he's concerned about their spiritual maturity was because there was a threat to this new little flock, the Colossian heresy. This false teaching claimed, among other things, that the Colossians could experience a deeper knowledge, a greater degree of his fullness, and a greater degree of power by adding to the gospel things such as regulations, religious holidays, asceticism, and even the worship of angels. It basically taught that Christ alone was not sufficient. So Paul wrote to counter that teaching by explaining to the Colossians who Christ was. And because of who he was, think verse 19, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Because of who Christ was, they could rest assured that Christ was supreme over everything. Totally sufficient. And completely satisfying. Paul understood that the wisdom that brought spiritual maturity with it would help inoculate these new believers against that false teaching. Paul makes that connection explicit at the end of this paragraph. Take a look at chapter 2, verse 4. I say this, that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Paul's concern for the Colossians was squarely fixed on their spiritual maturity. Verse 29, for this he said, I toil. Maybe a helpful way to understand this verse is to break it into three parts. Paul's focus, Paul's fight, and then Paul's fuel for the fight. The first thing Paul does is he reaches back to the previous verse where he told the Colossians his aim. For this he said, I toil. The this in that sentence is the spiritual maturity of everyone. That's the focus of Paul's labor. The purpose of Paul's ministry was to proclaim a revealed mystery to everyone with all wisdom in order to present everyone mature in Christ. You see, if they were to stand against this false teaching, they could not 
as Paul told the church in Corinth, they could not be children in their thinking. Yes, they should be infants in evil, but in their thinking, they needed to be mature. Spiritual infants are those who are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. The growth or progress of the Colossians from spiritual birth and infancy to spiritual maturity was Paul's focus. F.F. Bruce said it like this, Paul's work did not rest with the conversion of his hearers. That was the beginning. The end would not be reached until the day of Christ. And the quality of Paul's ministry would then be tested by the quality and the maturity of those whom he could present as his spiritual children. That was Paul's ministry, his focus. Now let's take a look at his fight. Paul used two words to describe the way or the intensity with which he labored. He toiled and he struggled. The word toil means exactly what you think. It's physical, mental, or spiritual exertion to the point of exhaustion. This toil was part of his suffering for the sake of the church that he mentions at the beginning of this paragraph. You see, Paul was the poster boy of hard work, perseverance, and suffering. Even this very letter that, is being, it, it, that was written is being penned from prison. We see that in chapter 4, verse 3. He wasn't bragging. He wanted the Colossians to know why he does what he does. and He wanted to, them to know why it was worth the toil. Jesus used the same word toil in his famous words, come to me all who labor. That's the Greek word for toil. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. But Paul compounds his words for emphasis. And he says that the way he toiled involved struggling. The word for struggling means to fight. When Paul told Timothy, fight the good fight of the faith, that's the word that he used. And at the end of his life, when he said, I have fought the good fight, he used the same word here. He struggled the good struggle. As J. Oswald Sanders put it, this word is used to describe a person struggling at work until utterly weary or competing in the arena for an athletic prize. It describes a soldier battling for his life or a man struggling to deliver his friends from danger. It's also where we get the English word agony. To struggle is to fight and to agonize. Paul's work of proclaiming Christ to everyone was a laboring to the point of exhaustion in an agonizing fight for the spiritual maturity of everyone. Later in this letter, Paul used the same word to describe the prayer life of Epaphras. He said in chapter 4, verse 12, Epaphras is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Why? That you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Epaphras was engaged in the same agonizing fight for the spiritual maturity of the Colossians that Paul was. But pay attention to the fact that he was fighting on his knees. 
Paul's fight included not only prayer, but physical and mental hardship. In his fight, Paul experienced labors, imprisonments, countless beatings. He was often near death. Five times he received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked. He spent a night and a day adrift at sea. He was on frequent journeys. He was in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in dangers from his own people, in danger from Gentiles, in danger from in the city, in danger in the wilderness. He was at danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food. This is his own testimony. In cold and exposure, and apart from other things, he had the daily pressure of the anxiety that he felt for all the churches. That's Paul's fight. That's Paul gladly spending and being spent for the sake of the souls of men. That's how Paul fought for the spiritual maturity of everyone. I thought of Paul's massive exertion and straining in ministry when I heard the news just over a week ago of the 30-year-old runner who collapsed and died just after crossing the finish line of the Brooklyn Half Marathon. That's the way Paul ran, and that's the way Paul fought, literally to the point of exhaustion. Now, where did this man get the fuel for that kind of work? Where did he get this kind of energy? He answers that question in the second half of this verse. For this I toil, he said, with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Now, that's a strange way to put it. Don't miss what Paul just said. Paul didn't say that he worked really hard and did his part, and then God swooped in and took care of the rest. Nor did he say that God helped him when things got too hard for him to handle. He is not suggesting that God helps those who help themselves. Paul's wording is clear, even if it's really difficult for us to apply. He labored, he fought, and he agonized with an energy that was foreign to him. He used someone else's energy. It was Christ's energy powerfully working within him. Those are Paul's words. Bible commentator G.K. Beale pointed out that Paul used nearly the same phrase in Ephesians chapter 3 when he wrote, Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. You start to see the connection between the power, the energy, and the grace of God. He was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to him by the working of his power. Beale said that God's grace is how Paul was able to perform his ministry. Paul's ministry was not performed by a synergistic activity. 
involving his own independent contribution together with the help of God's grace. That's why I stated it the way I did. Paul's source of energy, the fuel for his fight was Christ's energy, or better, it was the grace of God in Christ that empowered Paul for this work. Let's dissect that idea of grace is power a little more. I can tell you that as I studied this passage and as I looked at what other authors wrote, I was very dissatisfied. Many of them just took it on the surface and said, that's what Paul did. And they just stated, these are the facts. Paul worked with Christ's energy and they left it at that. Some of them even tried to explain away what was going on here. I was very dissatisfied. And if we get to the end of this and you think, Gosh, Tate, that was a half-baked sermon. Uh, come talk with me, and I'll show you some other wonderful things that, uh, that God showed me as I studied this. Um, but I'm not fully satisfied with my answer to this either. But I can tell you this. I want to be able to live and work and minister to you this way. I want to know the power of God's grace in my life and have that flow through my ministry to you. So let's dissect that idea. If we're ever going to apply it, we need to understand this. Let me first define what I mean by grace, and then let's make the biblical connection between grace and the power to work our fingers to the bone in ministry like Paul. What is grace? Here's the definition of grace that I've used in the past. I think it's accurate. I think it's helpful, even if it's a little clunky and, and not very memorable. Grace is the goodness of God overflowing in empowering love to creatures that did not earn it. It is the goodness of God that overflows from him in empowering love to creatures that cannot and did not earn it. So how does it work? How does grace work? How does it turn weak and fearful Christians into bold believers that toil and fight in ministry like the Apostle Paul? My answer is this. The grace of God is active. It empowers. It gives life. It energizes. Jonathan Edwards wrote about this active nature of God's grace. He said that, if any have a notion of grace, that it is something put into the heart, there to be confined and lie dormant, and that its influence does not govern or control the man as an active being, or that it has no tendency or power to bring about holy transformation of life, they have quite a wrong notion of it. So first, grace conveys the power of life to creatures. It conveys the power of life to creatures that are dead in their sins. It has the power to save sinners, to regenerate spiritually dead hearts. This is no small power that we're dealing with here. It is resurrection power. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then Paul interjects, by grace you have been saved. So what was the power that transformed Paul the persecutor into Paul the passionate follower of Jesus? It was the power of God's grace. 
It was the goodness of God overflowing in empowering love to Paul the sinner who did not and could not earn it. But let's go further. Summarizing John Stott, it is not only for salvation past tense that we are dependent upon grace, we are also dependent upon grace for service. This is the second way we see the active power of grace in the scriptures. Grace conveys power for every good work. And there's the connection to Paul's fervor and fight for the spiritual maturity of the Colossians. In 2 Corinthians 9, Paul wrote, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So what does grace give us all sufficiency for? What does grace give us the power to do? To abound in every good work. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. This is his own testimony. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, and note the connection between grace and Paul's labor. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. To what does Paul credit all his painstaking labor and struggling and suffering in gospel ministry? He says it wasn't him, but rather it was the grace of God that was with him. He's not just being humble. Grace was this man's fuel for his fight. It's clear then why Paul always gives Christ God's grace, Christ's power, the credit for everything he did in ministry. You see, this is something that he learned from Jesus himself. It was something that he repeatedly taught to others in his letters. Jesus told Paul this, my grace is sufficient for you. And my power, again, again, there's this connection between grace and power. My power is is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul said, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. In his remarkable words to the Christians at Rome, Paul gave all the credit to Christ for anything that he seemed to have accomplished in ministry. He wrote, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Paul's fuel for the fight was the grace of God in Christ, powerfully working within him. That's the energy with which Paul labored. Here again is the point that Paul wants the Colossians to grasp. 
the power by which he endured the backbreaking and heartbreaking labor and suffering of being a gospel servant was the grace of God in Christ. And the aim of his labors was to bring others into spiritual maturity. Let's bring this home. It's good and it's right to learn all these things about the Apostle Paul, to identify his focus, his fight, and the fuel for his fight. But what does it mean for us? I've often said that there are two groups in this room at all times. There are those who believe and those who don't. There are those who trust and treasure Christ, and there are those who don't. So let me say a word first to unbelievers. Paul's concern with the church at Colossae was their need for spiritual maturity to guard them against false teaching. That's not your immediate problem. Your problem is not a lack of maturity. It's a lack of life. You're dead in your sins. You know nothing of this power of grace. You need it to grant you life. You're blind and you're deaf, and you need the healing power of Christ to open your eyes and your ears. So let me do this. Allow me to offer you some good news. I've always wanted to do this this way. What follows is a short summary of the gospel. I recite this every week uh, so I can drive it into my thick head. It's from a little book by Vincent Milton. I think we probably have copies in the bookstore. It's called The Gospel Primer, and, and this, my friends, is good news. You see, God is immense beyond imagination. He measured the entire universe with merely the span of his hand. He's un imaginably awesome in all of his perfections, absolutely righteous, holy, and just in all of his ways. He's been unbelievably good and merciful to you as the creator and sustainer of your life. Every breath, every heartbeat, every function of every organ in your body is a gift from him. Every legitimate pleasure you experience is a gift from his loving hand to you. All that you are and all that you have, you owe to him and to his goodness. Your life in every way is and will continue to be utterly dependent upon him in whom you live and move and have your being. This wonderful God is the most supremely worthy object of admiration, honor, and delight in all of the universe. And he created you with the intention that you might glorify him by finding your soul's delight in him and by living in joyful obedience to him in all of your ways. Yet you could not have failed this great God more miserably than you have. Instead of giving thanks to him and humbly submitting to his rule over your life, you have rebelled against him and have actually sought to exalt yourself above him. Going your own way and living according to your own wisdom, wisdom, you've broken countless times either the letter or the spirit of every one of God's Ten Commandments. Thinking yourself to be wise, you have shown yourself to be a fool. You've, 
And because of your arrogance, God has every right to damn you to the everlasting experience of his terrifying wrath in the lake of fire. So as for yourself, apart from Christ, you're bound by the guilt of your sins. You're also bound by the power of sin, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Apart from Christ, you are utterly deserving of and destined for eternal punishment in the lake of fire, completely unable to save yourself or even to make one iota of a contribution to your own salvation. However, what you could not do, God did. And in doing it, he did it all, sending his own son into the world to die on the cross for your sins, thereby showing you unfathomable love. God loved you so much that he was willing to suffer the loss of his son. And even more amazingly, he was willing to allow his son to suffer the loss of him at the cross. Jesus loved you so much that he was willing to lay down his life for you. No one could ever love you more or better than Jesus. On the third day after Jesus' death, God raised him from the dead, thereby announcing that his death was completely sufficient to atone for every sin that you have or will commit throughout your lifetime. God then exalted Christ to his own right hand, where Christ now reigns on high, granting salvation and forgiveness to all who call on him by faith. That, brothers and sisters, is gloriously good news. Listen, unbeliever. If you have not called upon Christ in faith, please, please do that today. Come talk with me after the gathering. You don't have to talk with me. You can do it right now where you sit. Call upon Christ in faith. But know this, that one day you will enter the presence of the king of this universe, and it is the power of the grace of God in Christ that will be the only way that you will ever be presented before him as mature. And now a word to believers, or, or four words to believers. First, the ministry of proclaiming Christ in order to present others mature in Christ belongs to you. The scope of your service might be different than Paul's, but you share the same assignment. Last week, Josh helped us see that connection, the connection between Paul's ministry as the apostle to the Gentiles and ours. He showed us that Paul proclaimed Christ by warning everyone and teaching everyone with the aim of presenting them spiritually mature. Then he showed us that Paul used those same words, he applied those same words in Colossians 3.16 to all believers. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's one of those keys one of those keys for tapping into the fuel of grace. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Those are the same words he used to describe his own work of proclaiming Christ, teaching and admonishing. So the ministry of proclaiming Christ in order to present others mature in him is yours. That's what Christians do. They endeavor, they toil, they fight to borrow, John, borrow from John Owen, Christians labor diligently. 
They run as if in a race. They wrestle for victory. And they do it by the mighty inworking power of Christ working in them. And that, he says, with great and exceeding power. That's the first point for believers. This ministry is yours. Second, the ministry of proclaiming Christ in order to present others mature in him will require hard work, like an obvious point, and it may require suffering, toiling, and fighting. I won't spend a lot of time here, but I, I found it interesting that Jesus in John 16 said this to his disciples. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. If it's a, a silver alert, I'm right here. <laughs> um, here's what Jesus said. I've, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, he said, but take heart. I have overcome the world. We might be tempted to think that that promise, that promise of having trouble in this life was just for his disciples. But that doesn't seem to be the case. You see, after Paul was stoned and left for dead in the city of Lystra, he and Barnabas went to another city to preach. And when they had preached the gospel, this is from Acts chapter 14, and when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium, and to Antioch. And here's what they did. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, listen to this, saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So it's my contention that this ministry will require hard work. Third, the ministry of proclaiming Christ in order to present others mature in him is worth suffering for. It is worth the cost. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all he had and bought it. The reign of Christ over the hearts of men is of more worth than anything you could possibly own. It is the pearl of great value. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And what can a man give in return for his soul? Even the reproach of Christ, Moses reasoned, is greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. If it's truly that valuable, brothers and sisters... If the stakes are as high as heaven and hell, then let's put some faces and some names to our ministry. God has put people in your life for which you must labor and agonize in order to present them mature. This is your ministry. Husbands, this is your ministry to your wives. How are you laboring and agonizing for her spiritual growth? Are you struggling for her on your knees? Are you soaking in the word with her? 
Are you proclaiming Christ to her, reminding her often of the grace of God in the gospel? Are you warning her, teaching her with all wisdom? Wives, this is your ministry to your husbands. Parents, this is your ministry to your children. Living Water Church members, this is your ministry to one another. And this is your ministry to neighbors and to co-workers. Put real names and faces in each of those categories. And let's get fighting. Proclaim Christ to them. Warn them. Teach them. Pray for them like Paul, Timothy, and Epaphras who fought and prayed in an agonizing way. That should be enough to keep us fighting for the rest of our lives. What would it look like? What do you think it would look like if we really did that? What if we behaved in a way that was consistent with the gospel we claim to believe? What if we acted like heaven and hell were real? Please consider the people that God has in your life. This ministry is worth the fight. It is worth the cost. My final point for believers is as obvious as my first three. Your ministry must be powered by grace. Otherwise, it is impossible. You're more helpless in this ministry than you know. You have not the power to awaken the conscience to the reality and horror of sin. You have not the power to bring to life a heart dead in sin. Your best arguments and your most impressive skills of persuasion cannot transform a heart, cannot cause someone to be born again or make someone a new creature in Christ or cause them to grow into maturity. This work, this fight, this ministry of yours requires the resurrection power of Christ working in you. So how do we tap into this fuel of grace? this source of power. I think this needs an entire series of sermons. But quickly, three, three means. We tap into this power by the use of what we call the ordinary means of grace that God has graciously given us, especially His Word, prayer, and the Lord's Supper. Soak yourself in God's Word Meditate on it day and night. Memorize it. Let it penetrate your soul and stoke the flames of your affections for Christ. Don't just eat the word. Digest it well by meditation. And pray. Pray like Epaphras. Pray for strength for the fight. Pray for power in this ministry. Pray that you would run this race well. Pray for your own spiritual maturity. Pray for the spiritual birth and growth of everyone God has in your life. Pray for gospel opportunities. Pray that your actions begin to align with what you say you really believe. And pray that your hard work will not be in vain. Those are prayers that will bring much glory to our God. The old Puritan Henry Gutter captured both of these, the word in prayer, when he wrote, just like when your fire is out, by laying on fuel and blowing the spark remaining, you kindle it again. So by meditation, 
you stir up the grace that is in you. And by the breath of prayer, may revive and inflame the spirit of grace and prayer in you. And lastly, as we will do in a moment, join with your brothers and sisters in partaking of the Lord's Supper. That meal instituted by our Lord is meant to bring nourishment and strength to your soul. Wearied from the fight, we have the opportunity each week to reflect on the cross and all the benefits of the death of Jesus on our behalf. And those are but a few of the ways to tap into the supernatural power of grace for your labors in this ministry. And much more could be said, but I fear that I have gone over time. Let me close with this uh, short verse from the Apostle Peter. Brothers and sisters, grow. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Let me pray for us. Father, we have this impossible ministry and we, we barely know how to tap into the power of your grace to fulfill it. Father, forgive us for not toiling. Forgive us for not fighting. Forgive us for not acting like we say we believe. And Father, I pray that, uh, that you would change that within us. Father, I pray that you would pour out your grace upon this church and that you would stoke a fire within us to look around and grab people and snatch them from the fire so that we can present them to you mature in your Son. Father, I ask that you would, that you would do that work. Father, change our hearts Father, we need your grace. I pray this for my brothers and sisters and for me. In Jesus' name, amen.